he was in like a full suit with sunglasses on the whole time. And he was like clean shaven with like nice hair. And so he like straight up looked like James Bond and he hijacked a plane and then stole a bunch of money. What's going on, my fellow language learning nerds? Welcome back to another episode of Only an American. This podcast is designed for intermediate and advanced English learners who want to improve their comprehension and vocabulary skills through natural conversations, utilizing American English and slang. That is always a mouthful. But today, we're going to be talking about the story of the legendary D.B. Cooper. If you guys haven't heard it, Stay tuned. Let me know what you think. Are we going to talk about the D.B. Cooper thing? Yeah, man. Did you want to do that? Yeah, that, that fucking show was nuts. Like, you watched uh, the whole thing? Yeah, so I watched the whole thing. And did you did you finish it? I didn't finish it, no. I just, I like got the, I think it was like the first two episodes where it tells you all the story of how he actually did it. Not, not necessarily like where, like trying to find D.B. Cooper. Oh, really? Oh, so you haven't even gotten to like the best part because the guy that they think was D.B. Cooper is this guy like Robert something. I can't remember his last name, but he was he was Army Special Forces in Vietnam and um, and did a bunch of parachuting. He was a pilot. Um, He got put on this like uh, special mission with. I guess like their form of like special operations aviation at the time. So it would have been like today's 160th, but it was like back in Vietnam and he was flying little birds. They taught him how to fly while he was in Vietnam. And the reason they did it was because the mission that they were putting them on was kind of a suicide mission. So like none of the regular pilots wanted to do it. And it was called right bank was the name of the mission because all they had to teach them to do is take off, do a right bank, and then land. What? So what they were doing was they were going out and doing a giant circle and they were using this equipment to try to try to track down where like the uh, radio signals were coming from, from the Viet Cong. And um, their survival rate was like fucking nothing. Like, th- like they were always dying. And so that's what this guy ended up doing. Well, then... Um, he like showed a bunch of promise as a pilot and ended up going, um, and doing a bunch of work for the CIA. So then when Vietnam ended, can't remember, I think he had like disciplinary issues, but he wanted to do like 20 years in the army, but kept getting in trouble. And so they kicked him out of the army, like right after Vietnam. So then he was like super upset about all that shit. And he became, he ended up becoming a drug runner. He was running cocaine up the coast, up the West coast, back and forth. Well, then when the Iran crisis stuff was going on, he went back to the CIA and was a pilot, a helicopter pilot in Iran for the Bell helicopter company. What? And, but he was also working for the CIA. That was his but cover, basically, like, to get into Iran was yeah, working, for working for the Bell. Yeah. And um, he, like, did all this crazy shit throughout his life. But um, he was, they I can't remember exactly how they connected him, but there was, like, a bunch of evidence that it could very well have been him. And um, there was people, like, pointing fingers at him, and he always seemed to have, 
tons of money. And, but I mean, that could have came from working from, for the CIA and stuff too, I guess. But, um, so they like tracked him down and like tried to talk to him. And he was like, he like just lived on his boat in some arena in San Diego. And they like tried to do like hidden cameras and shit to like basically trap him into, and these are just like random people like investigating it, trying to find DB Cooper, just like a bunch of snitches <laughs> that were like, we want to solve the case of DB Cooper. It's like, fuck man, he only stole $200,000. Like, it's not even like, like that's like a small bank robbery. And you guys are, people are just obsessed with catching this guy. Like he got away with it. Let him get away. With he just it. did it in a that's really how cool I feel way. About the situation. Yeah. He just did it in a super badass way. Um, but yeah, so you got to finish the series. It's, it's fucking good. So before we and before we get into who we think or who they think DB Cooper is, let's go over like the story. How did so? What did DB Cooper do? Like, what's he? What was he known for? Okay, so I'll, I'll kind of break down the story. Basically, um, it was a guy that used an alias, and his alias was actually Dave Cooper. It wasn't D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper was a screw up after the fact by reporters because they overheard police officers say Dave Cooper and they heard D.B. Cooper. And so that's what got printed in the paper. Well, D.B. Cooper is a cooler name than Dave Cooper. So then people just stuck with that's it. Awesome. But on the actual ticket stub, it was Dave Cooper. His flight ticket, so right? He, yeah, his flight ticket. So... He gets on a plane in Portland and back then there was no security. There wasn't like airports were way relaxed. It was like getting on a city bus, right? You just go up to the counter, pay for your ticket. They give you the ticket. You get on the plane and you go up into the air. And so what he did was he got on the plane um, and then proceeded to hijack the plane using a bomb. And then uh, they landed in Seattle. And when they got to Seattle, he let all the passengers off the plane and just kept the crew on the plane. And then he told the authorities that he wanted $200,000 and four parachutes. And the, the big thing about the four parachutes was that he didn't want them to rig like like poorly rigged the parachute on purpose. So he made it seem like he was going to make the crew jump out with him. Right. So that way the authorities weren't going to like screw up the parachute or purposely give him a bad parachute so that he would crash land. He knew all the parachutes were good, but even though he was the only one that jumped. So then after they gave him the $2,000 or the $200,000 and then the parachutes, he made the plane take off and go to head towards Las Vegas. And they believe he jumped out somewhere over the Columbia River. Um, probably pretty close to like Tri-Cities. Um, but on the Oregon side. And, uh, and, uh, and then vanished. They never found a parachute. They never found the money. They never found anything. And he jumped out, I guess... The old Boeings had like a tail, um, like an emergency exit at the tail. 
and that's where he jumped out of. It was of. like a staircase coming off the rear of the, of the aircraft, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> so he jumps, and they never found him. And then it just became this like huge urban legend about like who's DB Cooper. Um, and part of it was because he was in like a full suit with sunglasses on the whole time. And he was like clean shaven with like nice hair. So he like straight up looked like James Bond and he hijacked a plane and then stole a bunch of money and parachuted out of it. So like people were like, this guy's a fucking badass. Yeah. Did they, uh, did they ever confirm whether or not he actually had explosives on the plane? You know, I, I don't know. I, I would venture to guess that it was probably fake explosives. That's what I was thinking. Because it to me, to me, it doesn't seem like he was actually there to harm anybody. No, I don't. I don't think he ever intended on like actually blowing up the plane. So why bring real explosives? And I remember seeing in the show they interviewed like the flight attendants and stuff after everything happened. And they're like, oh, how was yeah. it? How was he? How was his demeanor? And they're like, oh, he was super sweet. He was a nice guy. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. They're like, he's very pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Like he wasn't rude. He he just told him what he wanted them to do. And, and then he was nice to him the rest of the time. And what I thought was cool yeah. about this man is like, he's a smart guy. He obviously pulled this off. And what I was thinking is like, all right. So the pilots got alerted that the ramp like the staircase in the back came down when there was a change in pressure in the aircraft so at that time they could have obviously like recorded the coordinates of where the aircraft was and set up the search party there they didn't even do that well i'm sure they did but like i wonder if he was smart enough to kind of wait or like you know he's just standing on the ramp like letting them record all these coordinates and they jumped later on I know because he told he had all of the the flight attendants and obviously pilots stay in the aircraft, and he's like, just stay in the aircraft yeah. until you land, or I'm not not in the aircraft in the the cockpit. So yeah, who knows where he jumped out at? They just think he they started looking wherever it opened. You know, I would stand there on That's the. That's a good point. I was thinking about that. I was I would stand on the ramp for. 60 seconds you know i'd probably peek back up and as soon as i see someone walking down the aisle I'll be like all right time to go well and then here's <clears throat> here's an interesting question because a lot of people think there was like a co-conspirator conspirator conspirator um like somebody on the ground with a car that picked him up once he landed but how did he know where he was at yeah there's no way you know what i'm saying like they were flying super low and super slow, which it it does say in the documentary. Even the pilots said, like, we didn't think that the plane would be able to do that. But somehow he knew that the plane was able to do it because um, they were going like they were going like 75 knots at like 2,500 feet. Holy shit. In a yeah, commercial airliner? Super slow. And, yeah. In a commercial airliner. Um. So, but you know, like he, they had to go that slow in order for him to safely be able to jump out. Yeah. But for the fact that he knew that the plane was capable of that and the pilots didn't, is kind of suspicious. Like they also thought maybe it was a Boeing employee because one of the things they recovered his um, tie from the airplane, like he had taken off his tie 
and the tie had shards of um, like micro shards of aircraft grade aluminum in it, like commercial grade aluminum. And so the only place that used that was Boeing. Yeah, but how would it be in a and tie? And so they thought, well, huh? how would it be in a tie? It's not like a, a maintainer is walking around in a suit and tie, you know, working on aircraft. Well, maybe he's management. Who knows? Oh. You know, or or maybe it somehow it transferred from his work clothes onto those clothes. Wow. That's a whole other mystery. I don't know. Yeah. Well, then there's this whole other conspiracy. And this one is probably the most interesting to me because nobody even thought about looking at looking in Canada or looking, you know, everybody just assumed it was an American guy that did it. But there is a comic book series where it's a French Canadian pilot air or a air force pilot um, flies fighter jets and his name is Dave Cooper. And there is a, in one of the comic books, he jumps out of the back of a Boeing like that in the comic book. What? And this was written beforehand. Yeah, it was written beforehand. And the artist used to regularly free, uh, frequent the air bases and would tour all the air bases. And like, he was a pilot himself and knew about all this stuff. And, he would uh he would name characters in the comic book after like real pilots in real life and so then people are like wait a minute what if this guy was actually like a canadian air force pilot that's why he knew how to jump that's why he knew the plane would be able to go that low and that slow like that's why he used the name dave cooper because he was a fan of the comic book huh and there was also like this um uh Canada was going through this weird phasing process in their air force where they were basically letting a lot of air force pilots go. Like they were just kicking them out of the air force because they didn't, they didn't have enough space for them. So then there was like all these disgruntled, like former pilots. Um, so, and then I guess the, uh, one, like, I think it was like the post commander or whatever, for that Canadian Air Force Base was on the record saying that they thought it was one of theirs that did it. And then, um, but then when the US government, like the FBI, tried to get onto the Air Force, Canadian Air Force Base, they told them no. <laughs> the Canadians wouldn't let the FBI on the Air Force Base. That's pretty cool. So maybe they're covering for somebody. I don't know, man. Pretty crazy. But why, so why are they so dead set on this Green Beret being the one that is D.B. Cooper? Like what, what initially tipped them well, off to this guy? So what initially tipped them off was that um, there was another guy. So there's like a chain of people, right? And this is how, like, and in the information world, right? It's, you know, you've heard of like third or fourth hand knowledge. Yeah. And like the further it gets down that chain, the less credible the knowledge is, the information is. So there was a guy in Nevada that met another guy that was part of 
um, a news organization. And he told that guy that he knew DB Cooper, like he knew who he was. And then, so that guy called his other buddy who was an investigative journalist. And that's who the documentary is about for the most part is this guy that's the investigative journalist. And he basically gave up his entire life searching for DB Cooper. Wow. And so then that guy interviews this other dude. He's saying that it was this guy that he used to run drugs with in California. And he used to go around all over the place saying that he was DB Cooper and that he was former special forces. And like he had done all this stuff. Well, then it turned out that he didn't do any of that stuff. And he was just some like nobody drug dealer. But who he dealt drugs for was this other guy, Rob, Robert, who actually was all those things. Right. And so whether or not that guy just made up the conspiracy that he was D.B. Cooper or he knew that this other guy, Robert, was actually D.B. Cooper and was basically trying to claim all this guy's accolades. Cause he was, he would always tell people that he worked for the CIA. He would always tell people that he was special forces. He always told people he was a pilot and he always told people he was DB Cooper. Well, he was none of those things, but this other guy, Robert was all of them, but nobody knew or not if he was DB Cooper. Hmm. And then when people would ask him whether he, cause he got arrested right after, um, like he was a person of interest shortly afterwards um, after like the actual hijacking took place and the FBI arrested him and interviewed him. And uh, he would never say he wasn't TB Cooper. Like he never confirmed nor denied. <laughs> and then when, um, when the FBI um, tried to go after him, the CIA stepped in and told them, no, this isn't the guy you're looking for. You need to look elsewhere. And they shut down his file. What? The CIA did. And that's because of all the yeah, work and, he had done for the CIA. Yeah. And so even if he was D.B. Cooper, the CIA doesn't give a shit. What they care about is that he doesn't get arrested and then start opening his mouth about shit that he did for the CIA. Right. Wow. So there's per, a lot of crazy shit going on, but I don't know. I think it's interesting. I think it's a cool story, man. I think I always try to see it from his perspective, not necessarily the decision making, but the experience. How fucking crazy would that be? Oh, man, that would be a super crazy adrenaline. Oh, man. Imagine jumping out of an airplane and holding a briefcase with $200,000 into it. And this is another question, too, is they found a bunch of cash on the bank of the Columbia River. And there was a guy that knew exactly where all that cash was. So, yeah, so, so that guy was, um, that guy was the first dude that said that he was DB Cooper, but then he ended up not having like any experience flying. He had no experience like jumping out of airplanes. So they basically just ruled him out, but he knew, well, he told, he told the other guy that was in, in Nevada that this family was going to say that they found it. And then like two weeks later, that family said that they found it. And then the money was discovered. And that was his way of proving that he was DB Cooper. 
So that whole part is weird too, though. Like it doesn't make sense. Yeah, like how? What do you think that was even DB Cooper's money, or do you think that was just like some rich people that put some cash out there to try to create a good story? Well, I don't even. I don't even think it was that much money. No, it's just cash. That's it. it. Was just cash found, found quote unquote, in the river, basically around on, on the bank of the river. So it could have been like, you know, they got a thousand dollars in cash of twenty dollar bills and just like scattered it around. They're like, oh wow, this is DB Cooper's money, yeah. and then they're on you know the front page of the newspaper. And I don't remember. Was there any way for the authorities to prove? with like the serial numbers on the money that that was the money that they gave DB Cooper. I doubt it. It was, I mean, I doubt this, the banking system was that sophisticated back then. Cause they had what they were on the ground for an hour or two, two hours before they got the cash on board. There's no way that yeah. the banks. Yeah. To be fair, they did that. To be fair, they did, got it to them really fast. Yeah, they did. Like, yeah, I'm impressed. I didn't, I never knew that he even landed the plane like that. I thought, because I had heard the story of D.B. Cooper, but whenever you hear the story growing up, you just know that it's just this guy that jumped out of an airplane with a bunch of cash. So I always thought he stole the money from somewhere else, got on board the aircraft, and jumped out. I never knew like he held the aircraft hostage, basically. Yeah, I think I, think I assumed that the money was already, like the money was a transport plane. And like somehow he found out that um, that there was going to be all this money on this plane and he got on it somehow. That's kind of, I guess, what I thought in my head, but I also didn't know the story. But us growing up in the Northwest, like you just know who D.B. Cooper was. You didn't actually know the story. Yeah, yeah. You just hear of him. All you hear is he jumped out of a plane with a bunch of cash and there's a bunch of crazy people that think that they're going to get rich off of finding D.B. Cooper's money. Because he lost it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone thinks he Which, died, like, but like this guy was obviously yeah. very experienced. I don't think he died. Yeah. And that, and in this day and age, like $200,000 isn't even worth that much. <laughs> like, like that's not that no, much no. anymore. Back then. But in the 70s, yeah, I think it was like the equivalent of like $1.5 million today. Yeah. Something like that. But, and they never found a parachute. So obviously, if he would have burned in, they would have found something. Yeah, they would have found a parachute. Unless his parachute just yeah. didn't open, which that I don't believe that's the case. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he didn't know how to skydive. <laughs> it's his first time. <laughs> it was his first time. It was the one flaw in his plan. Yeah, he just <laughs> didn't know how to skydive. The biggest moving part of the entire movement. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, pr- that's pretty unlikely. Yeah. But I mean, back then, like, how many people were skydiving? It's got to be somebody that was in the military and doing it for a living. Yeah, yeah, because I don't think it was like super readily available back then. You know, like I don't. I'm sure there were some places where, as a civilian, you could go out and skydive, but it had to be a very small amount. Yeah, and like people probably just didn't do it as much because it was a lot more dangerous than it is today. Just based off the yeah. equipment, you know? Yeah. Well, and it would have to be somebody pretty high level in the military because either a pilot or 
some kind of special operations because even like a ranger or you know like like 101st or something like they don't they don't know how to actually skydive they no. they just jump out of planes yeah, and it, they're not static line poles they're not you know like they they're not f- doing free fall or anything like that yeah so like he would he had to have been like pretty high level to like know how to actually do it yeah i would not be surprised if he was a green beret if it was maybe not that guy but somebody involved um in special operations there's there's a couple green berets that have gone on to do some crazy shit i think the guy that started like his own cult in texas was a green beret what yeah (laughs) i i never heard this one (laughs) yeah there's a there's a documentary on netflix as well he um I want to, I'm so bad at this. This is two episodes in a row. I can't remember the fucking name of the documentary. (laughs) (laughs) Just Google it. You're in front of your computer. You also got to, you also got to remember that like during the Vietnam era, like those guys all came back just totally bonkers. I mean, well, at least a lot of them, you know? And so, is the guy that you're talking about was he Vietnam era or is this like more recent that he started the cold? No, it was Vietnam era. Oh, okay, yeah. It was in Waco, Texas. Um, I'm sure you heard of like the Waco massacre. Yeah, and that that's the one you're talking about. Yeah, apparently the leader of that he was like he started this cult and everybody thought he was like a messiah and all this shit. He was a former Green Beret, and then uh, oh. Yeah, he started this cult, and they ended up getting heavy into like the not arms trade, but they were like building their own little arsenal. He was like making he's like cult members into like little soldiers for him, and uh, it just freaked out the FBI. So when they went to raid it, they were basically just a bunch of bunkered shooters, and ended up like burning it down and killing a bunch of them. Yeah, see, because I remember I. I didn't know that it was a cult. I just thought the guys at Waco were like a militia that got like a little bit too intense. And the government doesn't like when um, people start becoming competitive with them. Yeah. So I don't know if cult, but is I was right word. Kind of fucked up. No, it was fucked up how they handled it for sure. I don't know if cult yeah. is the right word for it, um, but it was like a religious group. Like he, mm. he was this like religious leader and he got all of, he was like a very charismatic guy that got all of these people to follow him and think that he was, had like a, was there group sex involved? I mean, probably. <laughs> oh, well, then it's a cult. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the prerequisite for any good cult, huh? Good group mm-hmm. sex. Yeah. Good group sex. <laughs> <laughs> That's the only cult I would join. <laughs> That's like the only benefit of joining a, co- a cult is like unlimited LSD and group sex. <laughs> <laughs> That's only like the fun cults. Oh man, other not what's, other... what's the one that was out in Oregon? Did you ever watch that one with the dude from India? Yeah, yeah, I did. That was interesting too. Were, and they're they're the ones that like. It's like the largest chemical warfare against the United States in history. And they, they sprayed salmonella on all like the, on all the uh, buffets. They were spraying salmonella directly onto the food and killed a bunch of people. What? 
Yeah, that was that group. Who was spraying salmonella? Like, like the people the of the cult? Yeah, the people from the cult were doing Why? It. Uh, I, I don't know. And like, they were just crazy people. That one was crazy, then, too, because they didn't just, like, the one in Waco, he just had a big building. It was like an old school or something along those lines. The one in, in Oregon, he had, like, a whole he community. He had a ton of money. Yeah, he had, like, a fucking yeah. community. Like a, well, he had, like, a fleet of Rolls Royces. He had, like, an airstrip there, like, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, because he was getting all these rich people from California to just, like, give all their money to him. Because it was like a material possession. And so he was like, no, you have to give that to me because like everybody here is equal except me. Obviously, I drive around in Rolls Royces. <laughs> I'm, but I'm, all, of you, all of you fucks, all the peasants are equals. <laughs> dude, that is... Sounds a little bit like a dictatorship. I don't understand how one person or even like a group of people like that can get people just to throw their lives away. And you just them. prey on you. You prey on super weak-minded people that that crave a lot of guidance and community. Yeah, and then you just tell them if you do whatever I say, you know, all these great things will happen to you. And then you give them a little taste of something great because you're rich, and they're like, "Oh my god!" Like everything you say is true. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I. I. I mean, I. W- I wonder what the level of having to back up your bullshit. Like, how much do you actually have to do to get that kind of following? I'm sure you have to do quite a bit in the beginning. Yeah, maybe in the beginning. But then after that, it's just drugs and group sex. Well, yeah, and rumors. It's like when you get, like, imagine starting this cult and you have like 10 diehard followers that are just like your biggest recruiters and you give them the world. You give, you spend so much resources into making them happy and thinking that you're this you know, God-like character. And then they start recruiting people and their recruitment pitch is, well, this is what I experienced when I stayed here for a month. So you should just, you know, trust the process. Oh, yeah. The the process is super important. It's like the always holding a carrot out in front of them, you know? It's like, what next? Yeah. I wonder how Scientology does it. Scientology is weird, too. Oh, they're definitely a cult. You think so? Oh, 100%. But the difference about Scientology is like, they don't live together, obviously, and it's it's a bunch of famous people. Well, no, no, no. That's just like the people that you know of in Scientology. There, there are a shit ton of like normal people that are Scientologists. Yeah, I understand and, that, um, but it's not like... A lot of them do live together. Not It's not like a compound, but... When you're like a teenager or like college age, um, most of them have to go work on this yacht for, and they work directly for the guy that's like the leader of Scientology. Weird. And they like wear all white clothing and like white shoes and stuff. And they work on a yacht for him. It's super weird. Hmm. Weird. I wonder... But don't you have to pay a shit ton of money to even be like in the community of Scientology? No, I don't. I don't think so. But I do know that they cater a lot to the to like celebrities and stuff. Like celebrities have their own wing 
and at like the Scientology compound. Yeah. They have like their own wing that like only like famous people are allowed to be in. Cause my question is if it's not hard to join and it doesn't require a big monetary investment, why don't we know more about it? Like why is somebody not infiltrated? <laughs> like the, the Scientology, like the community of Scientology. Fuck it, you want to do it, bro? <laughs> Just do a documentary on like what it takes to be a Scientologist. Uh, dude, that would be that would be so sweet. But like that would be a blast. Like, why is nobody? I I know there's like stuff out there about Scientology, but why is there not like behind the scenes? Like, well, there has been some like documentaries come out where like people have spoke up against Scientology, but. You know, I don't know if there's like enough bad shit going on. No, it doesn't seem like another like a cult where they're doing a bunch of bad shit. It just seems like a community of people with beliefs that stray from we the social norms. We need to infiltrate we need to infiltrate like a bad cult. Like something super sketchy. <laughs> just do like this behind the scenes. What if we get brainwashed yeah. into thinking everything's true though? No, we have to have, we have to have something that levels us out. Like maybe like we we record like a video that like will like keep us if if we start to drink the Kool Aid, we can just go back and watch the video. Or like if you see me starting to drink the Kool Aid, you're like, no, Alex, you got to watch the video, and like vice versa. And it's basically just us being like, no, don't fucking do it. Or we like commit <laughs> to making daily videos documenting documenting like fucked up shit that happened. You were just like sneaking away. We're like in a closet. It's like dark. All you can see on our face is the light from the phone. It's like day one. It's like headache. <laughs> Water intake is below normal. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there was a guy that did something like this, but he did it at a Christian college where um, he's like this super liberal, like uh, he was a journalist major. And um, super liberal dude, like his family are all, uh, uh, they're all atheists, but they're also all um, communist. And so he's like this super, super liberal dude. And I was listening, it was some podcast with him. And uh, what he did was he enrolled in, I think it's like Trinity College or something like that. But it's like this super, super Christian college where like, like you don't even hug people from the other gender. Right. And it's like super, super strict. Well, he ended up going there and he went like full, like committed. Right. And was like going to Bible studies and was like, like only hung out with people from the school. And he did this for like a year and a half and had like this Christian girlfriend and all this stuff. Well, then the problem was he started to enjoy it. And he like didn't want to leave. So he disenrolled himself, went back to like New York and went back to his family so he could get like, like back to normal for whatever normal was for him. And then he like wrote a book about it. But before he released the book, he like called all his friends from college and like called his ex-girlfriend that he just like broke up with randomly and like explained to them. Like this was just an experiment for me. Like your guys' relationships weren't, like it like weren't supposed to mean anything to oh, me like blah, blah blah and he was like but you guys ended up becoming good friends of mine so now i feel bad about writing this book and they were all kind of like 
oh no it's okay man like, <laughs> you know, like they're like if you ever want to like go to church or like you know pray about it just let us know it's <laughs> the most like, forgiving people on the planet yeah <laughs> but i don't i don't think the cult we join will be so forgiving no hey guys that is all for today's episode i hope you guys enjoyed it um hope it was interesting the transcript for this week is going to be a little bit delayed. Uh, I'm getting ready to move down to Arizona, so um, I don't have as much free time as I normally do. But I will get it done, uh, so be patient. And I hope you guys have a great week. Stay consistent, and we'll see you back here next episode.